I think it's more about being intentional of what you're looking to build. When firms ask us like, hey, what firm is too small for you? It's not, for us, it's not about AUM, right? It's more about mindset and what they're looking to build. So I, I think you can see, you know, firms that are equipped to go independent on any end of the spectrum, right? In terms of the traditional metrics of how you would evaluate these practices. I think it's about the mindset, right? It's about that entrepreneurial drive and it's about the willingness to work on the business versus just working in the business. Welcome to the Active Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Harbor Capital. Join us as we learn from pros who have helped thousands of investors live better lives. I'm Brian Moore, and I'll be chatting with some of the brightest minds in the financial advisory business, bringing you insights on practice management and investment research that works for advisors and their clients. Joining me today on this episode of the Active Advisor Podcast is Nate Lenz, CEO and co-founder of Concurrent Advisors out of Tampa, Florida. Concurrent is a $12 billion OSJ turned RIA who's partnering with advisors to realize their potential as entrepreneurs. Prior to launching Concurrent, Nate was the co-founder and managing partner of INA Consulting, a boutique consultancy focused on M&A and experienced advisor recruiting. The launch of INA followed a six-year stint at Raymond James Financial Services, where he was the Vice President of Succession Planning and Acquisitions, leading an in-house consulting team that provided support to the 4,000-plus independent financial advisors affiliated with Ray J in both the independent broker-dealer and RAA custodian channels. He graduated with his bachelor's degree in economics from Columbia University and was a 2022 Investment News Under 40 honoree. Welcome, Nate, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Brian. Happy to uh, be on the show, man. You've already made me feel like an underachiever. You've been crushing it, it sounds like, you know, ever since high school. So usually, typically, there's something that kind of draws people to the investing world. What's your first memory that you have related to money or investing? It's interesting. And I, and I wish I could say that it was a uh, linear trajectory of an ascent, but it was not without its speed bumps and, and potholes along the way, uh, no doubt. But it's funny you mentioned high school because really my my first memory around investing, I was in a uh, high school economics class. We did a stock market game, right? Like I'm sure many of you have done before. Ultimately, it was over the course of a semester. We had a partner in that game. We had to you know, ultimately put together a portfolio. We figured out pretty quickly that in that short time frame, the fastest way to game the system was basically to try to bet on earnings reports. So I would not recommend that course of action, but it definitely myself and one of my good friends, Andrew Zabella, we ended up winning that game, but just barely by the skin of our teeth. And the team that got second place, ultimately they invested in one position. They held Apple stock for the duration of the game. So I don't know if that's a uh, an opinion on active or passive management, but that's ultimately my first memory was of really getting into investing. And from there, you know, I ended up studying economics in college. I did a couple of internships at Credit Suisse in institutional equity sales and trading. So really just kind of, I would say, take off from there in terms of my interest in ongoing experience in that space. Well, I want to give the nod to you and your partner because Apple definitely does not qualify as a diversified portfolio. So at least with earning stocks, hopefully you didn't just play the tech sector. All over the board. Yeah. No doubt. That's great. Well, I'm sure that actually kind of led to a very diversified learning experience across you know the many sectors of the marketplace. Before we dive in, though, and we get any deeper into uh, your investing acumen, can you tell us what a 1999 Ford Class C RV purchased on Craigslist, you have to note that, has to do with the origin story of concurrent investment advisors? 
It was a $4,500 RV for the record that was purchased on Craigslist. The RV actually, as told to us by its previous owner, made a trip to Burning Man. I've never been, but the RV had gone. So when we started the consulting business back in August of 2016, my partner, Scott Steele, and I, we had gotten this idea. A lot of our clients were concentrated on the East Coast of the United States, right? And we had no money at the time. <laughs> you know, Everything that we had in savings was just supporting our livelihoods as we got this thing off the ground. INA Consulting at its core, you know, I know you mentioned in the, in the bio originally, my background in succession and acquisition. So the consulting business that we had started was really focused in those areas. It was helping firms that wanted to grow inorganically. And what we found pretty quickly in my experience at Raymond James was that firms that wanted to acquire in a scalable and repeatable manner, ultimately it behooved them to have a, a solid recruiting value proposition. So mm-hmm. essentially what our consultancy did is it we became the outsourced business development acquisition team, some type of cross between a external recruiting firm and like an FP transition succession resource group, development company, right? And really we focused in the independent broker dealer space or you know, where we grew up, right? And so Going back to the RV, you know, we had a, lot, a high concentration of clients in the Eastern United States. We thought it'd be a good idea instead of uh, buying flights and hotel rooms to pinch pennies a little bit. It actually became a great adventure, right? So the first trip that we went on, we went from you know Tampa to Orlando up to the Charleston, South Carolina area. We definitely got some interesting looks jumping out of a 1999 RV with suit and tie on, you know, in a uh, McDonald's parking lot, or when we pulled it up to one of our clients' houses or offices. It was a unique experience. I would say formative over that time frame, and to this day, we still say that was probably the most productive, you know, few months that we had because all we did was kind of eat, sleep, and focus on building the business. But that was our chariot, so to speak, to get that done. Awesome. So every great vehicle has a name. What did you guys call the RV, and where is it today? It's called the Dutchman. Which actually, the name itself, Cavalier, was the actual brand on the side of the RV. So I have no idea why we called it the Dutchman. I think it came from. It was actually another Craigslist ad that we had sent to a group of colleagues. And I think that RV was called the Dutchman. And so that's the name that stuck. Unfortunately, the Dutchman, you know, we used it that first year, you know, then it sat in a storage lot for a couple of years. We came back to it. It had a plant growing out of the center console due to a leak in the roof. And uh, we had to pay someone to actually tow the Dutchman away. So it's no longer part of the vehicle lineup, but some fond memories were had for sure. Well, that's great. Brings a tear to my eye, the Dutchman and having a plant growing out of the center console. That's, that's no, That was tough, Brian. That was hard. for. Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine, man. I can only imagine. But it really sounds like you guys have been 100% invested in concurrent success from day one, which I think being that concurrent as a curator of technology, products, vendors, and have custodians for advisors to be able to outsource the things that don't really differentiate their practice. So basically, I'm going to sum this up in layman's terms. You really serve as the middle and back office for advisory practices. Is that fair? Absolutely. That is a great way to think about it. So first, tell us a little bit more about your curation process. What is your team bringing to bear in selecting the platforms, vendors, and resources that you offer? I would not say we are everything to everyone, right? So from our perspective, when we set out to build this platform, the goal was not to support every piece of technology that's out there, right? We wanted to spend time really figuring out, you know, what's going to have the greatest impact on our advisors' productivity, what's going to allow them to operate their business efficiently. And you'll hear me say this a lot when we talk to our teams, you know, we preach intentionality, right? And so 
with that, you know, making sure that we were bringing together pieces of technology, that we were bringing together custodial relationships, that we're bringing together other vendor relationships, you know, all of those pieces fit really well together, right? So we wanted to make sure that they can be well integrated, that they ultimately support what an advisor is doing on a day-to-day basis. It's making their lives easier, right? Not harder, because that's the biggest risk. When you start to bring in together all these third-party technologies, it's very easy for it to get unwieldy, right? And what happens if, if someone's not using it or they don't have the right training in place, right? Ultimately, they don't use it and it's all for naught. So I would say looking for vendors that are additive to an advisor's business that can ultimately help them deliver a more holistic set of solutions and do so in a very efficient manner. That's the lens that we were looking through this with. And you know, from our perspective, I think it all starts with making sure that the end client experience is continuously improving and evolving, right? So if you start to look at some of the pieces of technology that we're utilizing, SmartX as our UMA platform, we're using Black Diamond for client reporting, right? And also for trading for our advisors that are, are running money themselves, right? As portfolio, mm-hmm. we're using Practify for CRM. And then we've chosen Fidelity as our primary custodian. They're very tech forward in terms of the investment that they've made. And that was one of the key attractants to us. So from our perspective, I think that when you look at the lineup, right, it's designed to allow our advisors to operate across multiple platforms, multiple custodians, but do so with a standardized and efficient advisor experience. And again, we'll tell teams all the time that are considering affiliating with us, look, there's a lot of great providers out there, but in order to make this actionable, we had to narrow the focus and really make sure that you know we're supporting certain tools and resources as that back in middle office. No, that's great. That makes perfect sense. So you listed a couple of your providers that you've partnered with and you know use. Do you offer one premier provider in each service category, or do you provide optionality? There's some optionality in some of the categories, like on the financial planning side. You know, some of our teams use Money Guide Pro, some use eMoney. You know, I would say that in other categories such as CRM system, and then also on the client reporting piece, things that are tied into our compliance processes and procedures, we are singular in focus. And when we think about kind of our outlook on the industry, right, you'll hear me say this as well quite a bit. We believe that the future of the industry is first and foremost independent, right? Allowing advisors to sit on the same side of the table as clients, be objective, being able to operate as fiduciaries. And in that capacity, you know, we talk about the separation, right, of product from advice, The second big piece is we believe the future of this industry is advisor-centric, right? There's a lot of firms that ultimately look to disintermediate the advisor from the client. You know, we want to do just the opposite. We think the highest path of growth is going to come from our advisors differentiating themselves in the marketplace. And so we want to be supportive of that. So when you start to think about some of the tech that we've chosen, right? Black Diamond is a great example. It is the singular platform that we support, right? But one of the reasons that we chose it was that it's got a phenomenal user experience, right, for the advisor and for the end client, but it also allows for a high degree of customization, both in terms of what the client sees, as well as from a marketing and branding perspective. We think that's supportive of this idea of, you know, advisor centricity, which, you know, look, clients are working with an advisor because they perceive that they're like-minded, they have shared core values, right? Mm -hmm. If we can continue to put that on the pedestal, right? And we can help them differentiate themselves from a marketing and branding standpoint, that's how, you know, we're doing our job and how we're going to drive growth on a go-forward basis. We chose some of the technology and I'll point that one out, right? Black Diamond, because of its ability to help us do that. 
No, that makes perfect sense. And I think it's a nice actually transition over to the next topic. Is there a vendor or a resource or part of the concurrent offer that is a top fan favorite among your advisory teams? Sounds like it may be Black Diamond, but wanted to toss it back to you. No, absolutely. I mean, Black Diamond's great, right? A lot of our teams have had really good feedback on that tool and resource. And, and I think it goes back to the training, right? And implementation. Mm-hmm. I think they do a phenomenal job and they've put a lot of resources behind us to help train our teams to make sure that they're using it to the fullest extent possible. I would say other tools, you know, that our teams are really excited about. There's one, Pantera is an interesting tool that some of our teams have started to utilize, especially if they're working with some of those Henry clients, the high earners, not rich yet acronym, where they may have significant 401k assets, right? Uh, that are held inside, you know, the record keeper inside the plan. And being able to use a tool like Pontera to help advise on those assets has been a very attractive resource. So I've called that, that's kind of a fan favorite. It's a little bit niche in terms of, you know, what purpose it serves. And then, yeah, some of the stalwarts, you know, we've gotten really good feedback from our teams on as well. well that's great. And I love the Henry acronym. Does concurrent play a role in investment research or portfolio construction? And if not, do you see that as being part of the offer at any point down the road? So we do, right? We're not prescriptive as to how our teams manage assets. And we have teams that really cover the full spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. Some are focused on managing their own custom portfolios or models. They use a variety of products. Others are using primarily third-party managers. So we view our role, as you mentioned earlier, to curate the platform to have kind of all the arrows in the quiver available to them and the technologies available to them, right? Having a a true UMA platform was important to us because we have teams that use a combination, right? And so, you know, they may use more beta models for a core of their portfolio and they're using active managers for satellites to drive alpha. But as I mentioned, we've got teams that really run the gamut. So from our perspective, we want to put resources in their hands we want to align with third-party partners. We want to align with firms like you all, right? That can help provide advice and guidance to our teams. You know, most of what we put out at the concurrent level is more, I would say, kind of macro commentary, more big picture stuff that can help clients get acquainted with what's going on in the markets. And then we really leave it to the individual advisors, I think, to take it the step deeper on the actual portfolio construction side of things. But I do think that is an area that we're going to continue to bulk up within our organization and add resources to because it, you know, it is core to the offering that our teams are providing to clients. Makes sense. So we've talked a lot about your advisory teams. Is there a typical advisor or team that's using the concurrent platform? You know, what is the typical size, even average AUM? And generally speaking, where do they come from? Yeah. So average AUM on a per office basis is right around 230 million. And typically that's called a one to three advisor team that we're working with. You know, we do have a few of our larger, what we call our hub offices around the country. So for example, we've got Wealth Partners Alliance in Dallas, Texas. We've got Legacy Private Wealth Partners out of uh, Denver, Colorado, Family Wealth Solutions in Sarasota, Florida. You'll see, again, all these teams have their own brands, right? You're not seeing concurrent branding. And that goes back to our outlook on where we see this all going. And we see, you know, teams that have historically speaking, the teams that we brought on have come out of the wirehouses, right? So a large number of advisors from, from Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, UBS, Edward Jones as well has been a, a good source of opportunities because in a lot of ways they're operating their own PL today, right? They're kind of operating as an independent business owner, but while still being an employee. So, you know, our bread and butter has typically been to assist advisors that are breaking away, that are going independent for the first time, where we can add a tremendous amount of value to setting up the foundation of their business that they can then build upon. 
some of our teams are actively engaged in recruiting, right? So some of those hub firms that I mentioned, in addition to the concurrent value proposition, they're building a unique culture locally. They're creating that sense of camaraderie. They're providing the physical infrastructure, the office space, access to shared support staff. And we think that that really goes part and parcel to what we do in providing the middle and back office, operating the platform, et cetera. So there's kind of a variety of teams that choose to partner with us. But I think the the common thread in all of them is that, you know, again, they have this tremendous drive, right, to be a business owner. And a lot of, you know, what we can do is, is really allow them to be a prudent delegator we can take a lot of that off their plate, give them access to our greater scale, our pricing power that we can derive, but really most importantly, allow them to keep focused on the end client, right? And you'll see this on all of our materials. Our viewpoint is that, you know, by serving the advisor, we serve the client, right? Yep. We want to lose track of that. And so the firms that choose to partner with us are the firms that find value in being able to offload some of those different aspects that are non-differentiating, as you mentioned in the lead-in, that'll ultimately help them deliver a superior client experience and ultimately achieve their growth goals. That sounds to me like, including yourself, there's a common thread of just entrepreneurship across your client base. How has your own experience as one and as a founder informed your ability to serve this type of advisor? It's a good question, Brian. I think when I think about my experience as an entrepreneur, and like you said, when you read a you know, two paragraph bio, right? You only hit the highlights. And going back to where we started concurrent, that's probably a place to start there. We started this consulting business. We're traveling around in the Dutchman, right? We're meeting with these clients around the country. We recognized pretty quickly that a lot of our clients were operating very similar models in different markets, right? They also had different areas of expertise. Some are really strong operationally. Some were great on the investing side. Some were great on the planning side of things. They had something to contribute right, to the collective. And what we ultimately did when we launched Concurrent is we brought a group of these guys together. We drove the Dutchman up to Atlanta and we brought a group of teams together in the Atlanta airport Marriott right off the air train there. And we presented this idea called the superstructure, which was, hey, maintain your own brand, right, your autonomy, but let's jointly invest in a shared infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And then as we continue to grow and scale, we will continue to add to that shared infrastructure and move from the most operational back office functions closer and closer to the end client experience, continuing to be supportive, but always walking that fine line of never impeding upon an individual firm's independence or autonomy, right? And so, you know, I give you that backstory because, you know, we originally had nine firms at the table, you know, nine became eight, eight became five, (laughs) five became three eventually over the next four years uh, in terms of our called founding partner group before we really hit our stride. And we had our share of scraped knees and bloody elbows. So I think from our perspective, we learned a ton, right? I always like those sayings where it's like, there's no such thing as failure, right? They're just learning opportunities. And, And that's where I think we did a really good job of learning from those past experiences pivoting where necessary, and then continuously improving what we're doing and being accountable all along. So what I would say is we try to bring that to the table every day, right? With our teams. And we're not perfect by any means, right? We have our shortcomings in terms of, you know, how we operate. Things fall through the cracks all the time. But I think if you've got this intense focus that kind of permeates every level of your organization. Uh, You'll see if you you walk into our conference room, there's a a neon sign on the wall, right? It says, look for lemons. And the idea behind that ethos is, look, there's going to be situations over the course of any relationship where things don't go as expected. We talk about that internally a lot, right? That the source of most negative feelings are unmet expectations. It's going to happen. 
But at the end of the day, it's about, you know, what you do with it. And so we talk about looking for lemons. It's like, look, you're going to find a lemon. You know, that's a situation where it's really an opportunity where you can go above and beyond to solve it, right? To take ownership of it. And you can build a tremendous amount of goodwill, right? In any relationship by doing that. And so I would say that's the biggest thing that we've been able to, I think, implement across our team is that, you know, we want that mentality because the idea that it's going to be roses and unicorns all the time is just unrealistic. And so it's it's really about how you solve for some of those negative situations and really turn them into a positive. And it took everything I had, Brian, right there to not say make lemonade, but that's the idea of... Uh, that was good. That was good. And a hat tip to you. But you brought up a really good point that, you know, when you're on that path of being an entrepreneur and you, and you kind of break out from Raymond James and you had those eight clients or those nine members at the founding table, there in Atlanta, and you said you went down to three. What was the principle, I guess, the core belief that you had that guided you and, and saw you through to where you're at today? You know, and one of the mistakes that I've made, right, over the years is looking to be overly accommodative, right? So it wasn't that, you know, we were just super selective in the process and systematically cut down from nine to three, right? For mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of time there, and this is something we learned was, hey, let's try to sing kumbaya. Let's try to be overly accommodative to everyone at that table in an effort to create social cohesion and to keep things moving. It wasn't until you know we figured out who the right people were to have on the bus. And a lot of people self-selected right in that process, either in or out. And you know, there was a great kind of unifying moment. I remember being on a call and we were, you know, I haven't thought about this in a while, but you know, we're talking through and, and what became very apparent early on was there was really two schools of thought. And I think you you kind of get this in any type of structure like what we were creating, right? And very early on, I would say it was more of a confederacy than anything else. It wasn't that we were operating as a singular firm. It was more so, okay, what can we do that can be synergistic? And what we found quickly was that there was a subset of folks at that table that, and I'll use the country club analogy, you know, we're members of the country club, but we don't play tennis. So therefore we don't want to pay for any maintenance on the tennis courts. But we do play golf. And so we want to focus on that side of things. I think where we really hit our stride was when we had the right people at the table that were committed to investing kind of across the board towards this singular vision, regardless of the impact on their specific practice. And I think once we were united around that vision and working towards it, and we were able to articulate it, that's when the growth started to come, right? And and we really stayed true with it, right? I talk about... There's this uh, idea of like, you know, strong beliefs weekly held, right? We talk about pivoting. You know, we've pivoted a bunch of different times in a variety of manners. Even that this move to the the fully independent space, right? After building the business as an OSJ on an independent broker-dealer platform represented a pretty significant pivot, Mm -hmm. but one that we thought was necessary to continue to compete with some of the other firms that are out there and to really deliver, again, the best client experience and to fit with that vision that we have for where the industry is going. So... I would say that from our perspective, being singular in vision and united around that, but being willing to make changes along the way is important. And then really, I would say from there, the idea that having the right partners around you is critically important. So from our perspective, narrowing it to folks that did have that shared vision and being able to find your strengths, because that was another piece here. It's everyone's bringing individual expertise to the table. And that's part and parcel to our value prop. I mentioned independence, advisor-centric. You know, the last piece is it's collaborative, right? The future of this industry is collaborative in nature. It's not folks operating in a vacuum. And so, you know, when you have the right collaborators around the table, really powerful things can happen. Those are just some of the thoughts that we have around how we got to where we are, 
the mistakes that we learned from along the way. And like I said, I think it's pretty special though, once you have the right group of individuals that have that same shared vision and kind of collaborative focus. Well, it sounds like Concurrent already has a thriving business. You've got you know a thriving core nexus of people that obviously are working with you and clients. And so that's, I think, the nexus for any kind of continued success. With $13 billion already in AUM, I'm going to guess you're not stopping there. What are you focused on for the next two to three years in terms of growth? And what are some of the ways you're promoting and marketing the platform to other advisory teams? One piece of context that I want to provide that kind of, I think, completes the story and will lead into why our growth plan is what it is. So we did take on a strategic partner back in 2020. So we brought on Merchant Wealth Partners. I know they've, they've made some headlines. They've had quite a bit of growth in their own right. What was attractive about Merchant to us, right, is that they're a minority non-control investor, right, which is important. They don't want to turn entrepreneurs into employees. That's something that we talk about. So that aligned very well. They bring a tremendous amount of experience to the table, right? When you look at their team and a lot of these individuals, guys like, you know, Tim Bello, Rick D'Amico, Brian Staff, David Morazic, you know, Matt Brinker, right? They came from firms like United Capital, Dynasty, Focus, have operated broker dealers like PKS, right? These guys bring a tremendous amount of know-how to the table. So, you know, again, minority non-control, a tremendous amount of experience and knowledge to where they can truly add value was important to us. It's also patient capital, right? It's not a fund. There's no shot clock on the money. And we talk all the time about this idea. We're not building a transaction. We're building a business. And so having the right partner, I think, is important there. Aligning with them was really transformative for us. When you think about concurrent prior to the investment from Merchant, and prior to us rolling out our partnership model, you know what we were was an OSJ. We were a collection of disparate parts, independent firms operating around the country, really just you know essentially serving as a platform. But at the end of the day, we didn't have the alignment right that we needed to really build what we were trying to build. And so we rolled out our partnership model. We were able to leverage you know their debt and equity capital in doing so. And I think for us. In that structure, we take minority non-controlling stakes in our underlying firms, right? They get cash and equity in our business. So we were able to really tie the boats together, so to speak, right? And, and create alignment. And that was transformative because now rather than thinking of us as a vendor, right? Our advisors do truly view us as a partner. Going back to the original question, I wanted to give that context because when we think about growth, I think growth comes in a variety of potential lanes here, right? It comes from you know adding advisors like we've always done out of the wirehouse space, right? That are going independent mm-hmm. for the first time. That's not going to change. We're going to continue to grow in that way. But what we're seeing now is a huge uptick in advisors that are already independent, but are looking for a partner that they can align with for a variety of reasons, whether they want to be a prudent delegator, they want to take certain things off their plate, they want to leverage our scale and vendor relationships and additional support so they can continue to grow. We're seeing firms come to the table that are looking to solve for things like succession, where you know ultimately they want to find someone who can step into their shoes, but maybe not right now, right? Maybe it's something that's a little bit down the road, but they want to make sure they have that locked in. They've got a safety net underneath them. You know, if they, you know, God forbid, were to get hit by the bus or anything like that. That there's a plan in place. I think that fewer and fewer teams are looking to operate on an island. And by us being able to provide a platform from a growth standpoint, we are able to solve for a lot of those different situations. Uh, it's one of those things too, where even if it's not us solving for it, one of our teams may be able to, one of our hub firms may be able to. And that's where you know we want to be additive to them and add value, again, as a partner, fully aligned in their business. 
So you mentioned succession, which is a great and interesting topic that I think is it's always in the back of minds for independent RAs. Before founding Concurrent, your focus was on like the recruiting and succession planning world within a large IBD. What trends are you seeing in the advisor community with respect to the employee model versus the independent model? Yeah. You know, I think the employee model firms have gotten better, right? At succession, call it 10, 15 years ago. You know, it was kind of a retirement party and a gold watch. And then you had the the sunset packages that started to come into place in an effort, I think, to compete and be able to compensate advisors. Then you had the codification of, you know, FINRA rule. 2040, which then really kind of laid out the roadmap of how you facilitate succession specifically in a broker dealer format. And then you started to see, you know, call it back in 2011, 2012, a uh, greater prevalency of financing options, right? You know, before mm-hmm. broker dealer financing was the only way to go. And when you think about valuation multiples, right, in the independent space, they're somewhat range bound based on the availability of capital that you have at your disposal and really how much you know debt service can the cash flow of a business support. And so I think from that perspective, that's why you've always seen multiples on individual practice acquisitions, again, be somewhat range bound, right? The trends that we're seeing now, and again, the industry is not getting any younger. You see the demographics continue to shift. I think the average age the last time I saw might be somewhere in the upper 50s, maybe 58, 59 years old. And I think our industry, what we're getting wrong at this moment is training, right? The only firms that have the training programs are those larger wirehouse firms. I think Edward Jones does a good job, but I think a lot of that is credited to its culture of mentorship you know, within their organization. But a lot of the wirehouse firms, you know, they'll bring in these large training classes, but ultimately because the production hurdles are too high, you have this gap where we're not bringing new talent in. You have an aging demographic of advisors. And at the end of the day, you've got this called pent up supply, right? However, you start to look at the multiples that are were traditionally paid for independent businesses, let's say two, two and a half times revenue. And these advisors, they're looking at their cash flow. If they're ultimately bringing home you know, call it somewhere between 55 and 70% of gross revenue in terms of earnings before owner's compensation, it doesn't take a lot of years, right, to make up for whatever that multiple would be. So what you have is you had a lot of advisors that were staying put, continuing to, you know, sit in the chair. Their businesses were in decline, but the cash flow, because it is such a strong cash flow business, was just more attractive than walking away. And there's a ton of psychological hurdles that go into that mix as well. And so I think the firms that are having success, right, are firms that are developing talent internally. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you're going to replace the advisor one-to-one, right? It's not that I need that person that's willing to grab the phone book and dial for dollars, right? And that's going to have the same ability in the business as the senior advisor has, right? I think it comes through teams. I think there's specialization, right? Because I think advisors at this day and age are developing differently, right? Than advisors did, you know, 20, 30 years ago, right? And Michael Kitsis does a really good article. He's got this, you know, kind of timeline. And I think a lot of it coincides with the rise of fee-based business, but it's this idea that, you know, advisors 20, 30 years ago, right? The folks that are are the, you know, lead advisors now and are running these firms, they started cold calling. It was commissionable business, right? They developed sales acumen, right? And then over time, once they got enough revenue to support themselves and they started to develop empathy. And then overall, then you start to see designations pop up, right? And more financial planning and this need for a more holistic solution set. And they develop competency in those areas. For folks that are coming into the industry now, it's almost exactly the opposite. You've got you know kids that are graduating from Texas Tech with a CFP, but have never sat across the table from a grieving widow, right? Have never 
sold anything in their lives, right? So it's, you have this kind of mismatch, right? Or reversal in development. And so the firms that are going to do this really well are firms that recognize that, that are building out teams of individuals that can help serve clients, right? And that ultimately are able to create a soft landing, being cognizant of the psychological implications of succession planning to allow for an advisor to essentially integrate with the team, to be able to do it over time on the timeline that fits them best, right? That allows their role to evolve in the way that they want it to. And so I think firms that can create that scenario, and now that you see you know, significant capital investment coming into the space, right? That's where you're seeing it start to kind of the cost benefit analysis, right? Multiples are going up primarily driven by equity investment in the space and some of these larger roll-ups or aggregator models that can leverage economies of scale, right? To make that work for their business, you know, paired with the ability to develop talent, that's where I think you're seeing firms have a tremendous amount of success, right? And there's a number of them out there that are doing it. And we hope to be in the ranks there. But I think one thing to note is that, you know, again, from our perspective, serving the advisor serves the client, you know, our goal is to equip our teams, right? To be in that position to where they can become a succession solution for advisors in their individual markets, where we can then, you know, support them on the back end, could it be that intermediary help with things like valuation, deal structure, et cetera. So, but I do think you're going to see the demographics, you know, are going to continue to shift. And I think you're going to see consolidation, right? With firms that have, you know, got it right, so to speak, in terms of being able to develop talent and can be thoughtful around the structures that they're presenting to make that cost benefit analysis of retirement make sense. Okay. So I do have to, as a big 12 fan, nothing against the Red Raiders at Texas Tech, but yeah, you picked on them. I get it. They picked on my Sooners this past year. <laughs> is there anyone in particular that you care to name or is there a profile of an advisor or you'd say, a, you know, a team structure that is better prepared to go independent? At the end of the day, I think independent firms can take any shape or size, right? We mm-hmm. have some really good independent firms that it's a sole advisor with one support staff person, right? One branch professional operating their office, right? And they do a phenomenal job for clients and they're growing primarily through referrals. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got these firms that are building ensemble type practices with you know specialization. They've got a head of financial planning. They've got someone that's running the investments for them. They have a team there. They've got traders, right? And then they're leveraging that infrastructure as a recruiting value proposition. I don't necessarily think one is better than the other, right? I think it's more about being intentional of what you're looking to build when firms ask us like, hey, what firm is too small for you? It's not, for us, it's not about AUM, right? It's more about mindset and what they're looking to build. So I, I think you can see, you know, firms that are equipped to go independent on any end of the spectrum, right? In terms of the traditional metrics of how you would evaluate these practices. I think it's about the mindset, right? It's about that entrepreneurial drive. And it's about the willingness to work on the business versus just working in the business. And that does take time, right? You got to take a step back You've got to do things like business planning. You've got to make sure that you've got the you know administrative functions buttoned up. You know that definitely takes hours out of the day, and so I think you've got to have someone that's got that willingness to take that on in order to have a successful independent team. Okay, I'm going to ask you last final question before we transition to the closing questions, and I'm going to ask you few words as possible because I want to get you know an answer out of you on this one, a direct one. What is the skill that you believe an advisor starting on their journey today should focus on developing? And I know it's a very loaded question. What are two or three words that would define the key skill that you think everything can be built upon? I would say empathy. I'll keep it 
as simple as possible. I mean, I think that's the key here. No, I think you're hundred percent right. I think it's, it, I've said this a couple of times. I mean, we forget that sometimes because we're always looking at, you know, ones and twos and, and zeros and all these different numbers. We forget that this is a human driven business and it's best served by humans. So some great advice. Thank you so much today for speaking with us. I'm going to head into our final few questions. We at Harbor believe wholeheartedly in active management, but every financial professional has their own take. Is there a general view on this among the concurrent team, or have you observed any trends or preferences among concurrent advisory base? I would say from a trends and objective standpoint, I think there's definitely a shift going on, right, towards more active management. So I would see that, that you know, from our perspective, like I said, we're not prescriptive as how advisors do it, but, you know, where maybe... 10 years ago, or even when we started the business called back in 2016. And look, we were in a massive bull market, right? Everything went yeah. one direction. There was a huge, I think, trend towards passive management, right? It's low cost. Let's strip all the cost out of it, ETF models. I would say that, you know, now that we are facing greater turbulence, right? We've got geopolitical headwinds, you know, we've got interest rate rises, we've got all these different pieces that are in play. I think that has, you know, brought a new emphasis to active management, right? So I would definitely say that from a trend standpoint, we're seeing a greater and greater appetite for that. We're also seeing a lot of our firms starting to shift towards outsourcing that component, right? There's only mm -hmm. so many in a day. As I mentioned before, empathy is probably the greatest trait. It's a relationship business. I think for a lot of our teams, you know, they find that they can add the most value dealing with some of the complex planning issues, right? And helping their clients overcome biases, right? That they might face. And ultimately getting access to active management through using third party managers, right? That's what they do day in and day out, right? And they have teams that do that. Definitely seeing a trend in that direction. Oh, that's awesome. So, how can people find you? What's your social site? Are you on Twitter? Yeah, LinkedIn, probably the best. It's funny. I don't actually, I think we do have a corporate Twitter handle. I'm not active on that one, but I would say, you know, LinkedIn is best. Our website is also a great place to find us, poweredbyconcurrent.com. And I would say those would be the two spots to contact me. That's awesome. We'll definitely give you a follow and look forward of things to come. So now we're going to move on to the last final segment. You've been a great participant. What I like to call the lightning round, but the team calls it 60 seconds with Nate Lens. So okay. let me know when you're ready. Let's do it. Let's jump in. Nickname. Nate Dog. Okay. Hobby. I like fishing. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. Definitely. Restaurant recommendation in Greater Tampa? Pearl. It's that oyster bar. It's not. Messy desk or clean desk? Pretty clean. Piles though, but I do like them in piles. Most used emoji in text messaging? I would say the laughing emoji with the tears coming out of the side. Hidden talent. I started playing the ukulele. Also not very good at it, but trying. 60-40 portfolio, a classic or a relic? A relic. Best career advice you've gotten? Find a revenue stream and stand in the middle of it. Number one piece of advice for an advisor considering going independent? Be intentional. Are you using chat GPT? We're not using it yet. Favorite way to get active? Peloton. I became a heavy Peloton uh, user during COVID. Well, that's awesome. Thank you very much. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just getting started, the Active Advisor brought to you by Harbor Capital offers professional insights for the financial advisor community. Visit us at harborcapital.com to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to the Active Advisor on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on investment trends, tried and tested research methods, and what your industry peers are up to. From all of us at Harbor Capital, thanks for tuning in. 
And now for important disclosures. This material is for informational purposes and is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research or investment advice and is not a recommendation, offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of 9th of May 2023 and are subject to change. The opinions expressed by the speakers do not necessarily represent the views of Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. to be reliable and are not necessarily all-inclusive and are not guaranteed as to accuracy. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. Such information may include, among other things, projections and forecasts. There is no guarantee that any of these views will come to pass. This material may not be representative of the experience of other individuals. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the viewer. This material is not legal, tax or accounting advice. Please consult with a qualified professional for this type of advice. Investing involves risk including the risk of loss. Specific companies and issuers are mentioned for educational purposes only and should not be deemed a recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Any companies mentioned do not necessarily represent current or future holdings of any investment products. Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. This material is prepared by Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. is not affiliated with Concurrent. All trademarks or product names mentioned herein are the property of their respective owners. Copyright 2023 Harbour Capital Advisors Inc. All rights reserved.